This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Man, so on a, a sermon on humility, it, it's funny the, the things I was, I was like, God, are you kidding me? Like all the different things that I was struggling with this morning. And uh, it's, it's perfect that that's how God would orchestrate it, that that, that would be the day we'd, we'd preach on humility. So Philippians chapter 3, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to it. Uh, it's near the end of the Bible. Uh, so Paul had four letters there uh, tucked into the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I always remember it as go eat popcorn. Um, I heard it once and it stuck. And, and so that's how I remember the order. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. Um, so Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's uh, some Bibles at the info desk. I know at this point it's like, okay, great. But just know that they're there. Love for you to grab one and take it with you. If you know someone who doesn't have one, take it, give it away. Uh, we just want people to have the, the Word of God in their possession. Uh, and so please, by all means, uh, take it. So let me, uh, let me get this open here. Philippians chapter 3. Um, so one of the things that I was think, as I was thinking about this, I, I immediately started thinking for some reason, because I probably oftentimes do, I started thinking about Pixar. Anybody familiar with the company Pixar, uh, the, the, the films, the fantastic films, um, except for Ratatouille? I don't know why they thought, like, let's make a film about rats cooking food. Um, that's the only one they went south on. Uh, other than that, I think they, they're hitting near 100%. Um, but I love Pixar ever since Toy Story. Um, when I found out that Ed Catmull, the CEO, wrote a book, um, I was all over it, grabbed that book, started reading it. I love reading about the ups and downs, the ins and outs, how it became the company it was, how it built the culture and has kept the culture uh, that it is. I just, I love, I love Pixar. I think they always put out uh, great stuff. Fun fact, um, I learned this. Did you know that uh, the beloved movie Monsters, Inc., it, Show of hands if you've seen Monsters, Inc. If it's like, okay, good. Um, I feel like sometimes I say a movie and then people are like, I, don't, I got nothing, um, which is rare for me because I really don't. I, I don't know that many movies. Um, but Monsters, Inc., did you know that originally uh, Boo and Mike Wazowski were not even in the movie? Like, they were not even characters in the movie. Like, it's not Monsters, Inc. without Boo and Mike Wazowski. Um, but no, in, in the initial movie, not even in the original script. So how do we get to the, the movie that we have today? Like, how do we have the fantastic Monsters, Inc. that didn't start with those characters? Uh, Ed, in his book, says that a lot of what makes Pixar successful is this group they call the Brain Trust. And so every movie, um, from beginning to end, gets put in front of this group of people, the Brain Trust, and they just, their, design, their, their task is to, to watch it objectively, to, to read it, to look at the pictures, the storyline objectively, to, to identify and solve problems, and to really speak honestly and candidly for the good of the film. And so the, the fact that there's Boo and Mike Wazowski has to do with that brain trust. That when the first storyline came out about this 30-year-old accountant that you know, had bad dreams from old pictures he drew, they're like, man, something's not connecting. And so it's this brain trust that started to introduce, what about this or what about that? Um, and so it's, it's that group that comes together for the good of the film, not subjective personal opinions, but the good of the film that ultimately tweaks and adjusts. And we have the company, the, the films of Pixar today, in large part because of that group. Now, what Ed said about 
this, this group. He said is that there's no place for ego in the brain trust. There's no place for selfish ambition. He said every movie, and this is his quote in the book, every movie when first proposed sucks. And if the brain, the brain trust job is to move it from suck to not suck. And if you walk in there with selfish ambition, you hold tightly to what it sucks and you don't let go loosely so that people can shape it and move it to something that's better. I was like, I appreciate the honesty. You know, from someone, I'm like, I don't think anything is bad. And he's like, no, 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 it's bad. Um, he calls it the ugly baby uh, when it starts. Um, not to any babies. All babies are beautiful, but he's, never mind. Um, and, and so that's their objective. And he said, now, if you walk in there with this selfish ambition, it's my dream, it's my story, it's my character, it's my, my he said, then, then your ideas will live, but the film will die. The film cannot move forward if you're holding tightly to what is yours. You have to let go so that the good of the film can move forward. See, what, what Ed knows is that selfishness leads to disunity, and disunity leads to destruction. Selfishness leads to disunity. It's going to break down this brain trust, and disunity will ultimately lead to destruction. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he said, every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. Selfishness is going to lead to disunity, and disunity will eventually lead to destruction. Right? It happens in almost any relationship. Right? Ed knew it for a movie that selfishness is going to kill the movie. Um, relationships, marriages, the reason marriages fall apart, you can trace back to some level of selfishness. Abuse, adultery, neglect, all of those things have selfishness down in the root of them. Great teams, man, right? They shut down, but you may have the best athletes, but if they can't come together as a team, then they're not going to move forward. Selfishness shuts down the team. It shuts down companies. It shuts down, I mean, group projects, right? Like we have all of these things that break down when selfishness creeps up and becomes a player in the game. And what Paul knows and what he says to this church in Philippians is that selfishness can destroy a church. It can destroy this church. Before this church can really get going, selfishness can cripple it. And that's the point that Paul is getting to here in Philippians chapter 2. When he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. The church was going well. This is Paul's happiest letter. In almost every other letter, I mean, he spends the majority of his time correcting the church. This is his happiest letter, but he knows that all it takes is selfishness for this church to fall apart. Now, what's, I think it's important is to go back to what is the purpose of the church. What is Paul's purpose? Why is he writing this letter? And what we see in chapter 1, if you go to chapter 1, verse 21, I, I think we see the purpose of Paul, his, his joy, his passion, what, what really he wakes up and lives life for, he says in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Man, Paul knows that one day he's going to die, and at that point, he enters into an ever-increasing eternal amount of joy in the presence of God. And he's like, yes and amen, let's go. But he also knows that if he's alive, every breath that he has while he's alive is for one purpose, and it is to lift up Christ. He is in prison as he's writing this letter, and you see the word rejoice, rejoice, rejoice all the time. I've never been locked up. I hope to never, that never happens. I can't imagine that joy is going to be the first word coming to my mind in prison. And yet that's what Paul is saying. Why? Because he's like, he says earlier, man, the gospel is advancing. I've got to share with all of the guards about Jesus. 
He looks at his circumstances, and because Christ is being lifted up, he's like, I'm good. I can rejoice. That is his purpose and his heartbeat. And then he turns to the church and he says, and that's your purpose too. Chapter one, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If, he says, if you're alive and you're breathing and you're hearing or reading this letter, if you take on the name of Jesus, let your life honor and reflect him well. Be, be worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. This isn't a verse of like you have to earn your salvation. It's simply saying because of what you've been given, let your manner of life reflect it well. That's our purpose. That's why we're here, to lift up the name of Jesus. And what Paul knows is that selfishness can kill it, can absolutely destroy the purpose of the church. Our purpose to lead people to life in Jesus, selfishness will cripple it. But Christ is lifted up through lives laid down. Christ is lifted up through lives that are laid down in humility and for the good of others, Christ is lifted up and the purpose of the church moves forward. And so Paul's focus here, his purpose for writing here in chapter two is unity, is a plea for unity within the church. He says in verse one of chapter two, uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, complete my joy of Christ being lifted up, complete my joy of the gospel advancing, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's plea is for the church to be unified. In, in heart, in mind, in action, to be one body working together. And Paul knows that it's tough, right? Paul knows that unity is tough. I mean, however many people in here, you've got that many opinions. You've got that many preferences. He knows that, that different stories and backgrounds, when it comes together, man, it's hard to work together in unity. The, the remarkable thing about this, this church in Philippi is the, the wild diversity of it. So in Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas, the, the missionaries, the church planners, show up to Philippi and they run up to Lydia. This fashionista, icon, CEO, lady has all the money, she's running her business, and they, they share the gospel with Lydia and Lydia trusts Christ. The next person that they encounter is a teenage slave girl, demon-possessed slave girl. And, and then she's hassling um, uh, Paul and Silas, and they, they cast out the demon from this girl and she trusts Christ. That's the second member of their church. You have the CEO of a fashion empire, Lydia, and then you have a teenage, former demon-possessed slave girl. The third person, after Paul and Silas get thrown in jail for casting out this demon, uh, they lead the jailer to Jesus, a blue-collar, hard-working jailer and his family. And so just think of it, you got, you got West Austin, you've got Cesar Chavez area, you've got Southwest Austin, you've got different parts of the city that normally would never really cross paths, much less have a real relationship with each other. And that's who starts that church. That diverse group of people united under one common theme, Jesus. Jesus unites the diverse people, the different ages and stories and races and gender can all come together under the name of Jesus. But it doesn't change the fact that they're still individuals. 
that selfishness can still creep up, that preference can still creep up? How often do you see the CEO of a major fashion industry interacting with a teenage girl? And so Paul knows, man, this thing can go, this thing can go sideways real quick. These, these different socioeconomic classes, they don't oftentimes hang out together. So I know that disunity can happen real quick. And when that happens, the church falls apart. The purpose of leading people to life in Jesus falls apart. And so he says, be unified, be of the same mind, the same love, one accord, one mind. Now, the great thing about what God offers us is that he doesn't ask us to do what he hasn't already done in Jesus. And so he doesn't ask us to say like, hey, go be unified with a bunch of diverse, different people, people that you may not normally interact with. Go, go be one with them and then just send us out on our own. But rather he gives us everything we need in Jesus to give of ourselves for the good of others. And so that's why the weight of this first verse of how we can be unified is linked to the first half of it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, that's not a question. It's more of a statement like, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is hope in Jesus, that you've been encouraged in Jesus, since there is comfort from the love of Christ for you, that God has a steadfast love for you that never fades, since that comfort is there, since you have the, the participation, the fellowship, the friendship of the Spirit of God in you, since you have affection and sympathy from Christ, since you have everything that you could possibly need in Jesus, then give yourselves away for the good of others in unity. So Paul, he calls us to do based on what Jesus has already done. We don't have to do this out of our own strength. We just have to receive what Christ has given us, and then we can go and we can give to others. Then we can be united in one mind. Man, unity is essential to the church. It, it, it is essential to one another here. Why is it so important? Why is unity so, why is it so important that we're one church, one family? I'll give, you, I'll give you three reasons. The first one, because it properly honors and displays God. In John chapter 17, it's the night that Jesus is arrested. He's praying and we get an insight into the prayer that Jesus has. And, and this is part of what he prays in John chapter 17. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That they, the church, the disciples, the people who take on the name of Jesus, that they will be one in the same way that we, Jesus, to the Father, that we are one. You see, God is one God, but he operates in three unique yet fully unified persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no separation between the three. They have a perfect love and a perfect community. They're perfectly unified. And Jesus says that the, the church is meant to be unified as, the, as, as God is unified as one. And so we're meant to be a picture of the unified God of the Bible. We're meant to display him with our lives. In, in Corinthians, man, they were, they were picking their factions. They're like, oh, no, no, I'm, 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 I'm about Paul. And they're like, no, I like Peter. And Paul's like, stop it. Is Christ divided? Is there really like divisions of Jesus? No, there's one Jesus. It's not faction over here and faction over there. We're one underneath Jesus. Stop it. You're representing poorly the God of the Bible. We cannot represent God well if we're disunified. We leave a bad taste in the mouth of those around us. 
Early when we moved here, uh, I, met, I met someone who, they were, you know, everyone asked, oh, why'd you move here? I'm like, oh, we're starting a church. Um, and we would frequently then been asked, like, oh, what kind of church is it? Um, and so I, I told her, and, and she replied back, and she was like, yeah, you know, my, my grandfather was a, a minister, um, but it was terrible. Like, all they did was fight, and the people, the way they treated him and talked to him, like, it just, it was miserable on my parents. Like, they suffered immensely from watching their dad be attacked as a minister and watching the church fight with one another. And so this lady, she said, early on, I decided that if that's what God is like, I want nothing to do with it. And, she, and then she said, the people outside the church were more loving than the people in it. How we love and live in unity with one another, it reflects the God that we say we follow. If we live disunified, then we're saying we follow a disunified God. And so it, it honors and represents God well when we live in unity. The second reason is that we're more effective in a common mission. We're more effective together towards a single uh, mission. Uh, Jesus, when he cast out a demon, some of the Pharisees were like, oh, it's only because he's you know, possessed with a greater demon. And, and Jesus, that's when he says, a house divided cannot stand. Like, that doesn't even make sense that, oh, I'm going to cast out my own teammates and then we're going to be stronger. He's like, that, that's, that's stupid, people. Um, and, and so Jesus' point is that you can't divide yourself and think that you can move forward together. That's one of the common attacks of Satan is disunity. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, it's a fascinating read. Um, and in it, it's just a series of fictional hypothetical letters written from Screwtape, uh, the, the senior demon, to his younger um, nephew, uh, you know, demon who's learning the ways Wormwood. So Screwtape is the, the older senior demon. Wormwood is the younger demon kind of learning the rope. And he's writing letters like, hey, here's how you attack them. Here's how you do the work of the devil to steal, kill, and destroy. You go this way and you go this way. And this is what he says in one of those letters. Uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood, I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, then he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean uh, on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion. And all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, those are admirable ground for our activities. Without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. You see, the, the attack of the enemy is, hey, if we can create disunity within the church, then, then they really can't do the mission that God's given them to increase Christ. They really can't lift Jesus up. There's a uh, um, Calvin and Hobbes uh, cartoon. I, th I think we might have the, the picture. I don't know if it's going to come up well. Um, there it is. So you've got uh, Lucy, right, and Linus. And she comes up, she says, switch the channels. And he doesn't move. And she says, I said switch channels. I want to watch my program. Are you kidding me? What makes you think you can just walk right in here and take over? These five fingers, individually they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want? Why can't you guys get organized like that? Right? It's this picture of individually, yeah, you can only do so much. But when you come together, right, there's power in unity. There's power in unity. If we want to lead people to life in Jesus in Austin and the world, it's not going to happen when we're individuals, when we're disunified in factions and fighting and arguing. It's just not. It's going to lead to destruction. The third reason why unity matters is that it builds one another up. 
We, we need each other. I need you to grow in my faith. It matters when you come to worship because you build others up. It's not just about you. I think so often we think about this or we think about community group. We're like, ah, it's no big deal if I don't go, right? Like, who's it affecting? Well, it's not just affecting you. It's affecting the church. It's affecting the glory of God. It matters. We need one another to be built up. Ephesians 4 says um, that God's wired each of us differently to use our gifts until we all attain the unity of the faith. And that when the body comes together and everyone works together, then we are built up in love. We're only going to be built up in Christ when we come together in unity and work together in love. It's, it's the sequoia redwood trees. Um, I, I've never seen them in person, just pictures, but they're massive, right? Like they can go 250 to 350 feet tall. To, for reference, the UT clock tower is 307 feet tall. Uh, I measured it the other day. Um, and so like that's how big these trees can get. Just massive trees. But what's so amazing is that their root system is really shallow, like 10 to 12 feet max. So how does something that weighs several hundred tons not get top heavy and blow over with 10 feet of root system? So they don't go very deep, but they go incredibly wide. And you'll never see a redwood in isolation. You'll always see them in clusters. And the roots from the trees literally overlap and intertangle with the roots from other trees so that together they are literally holding one another up. It's not very, very deep, but together as one group of trees, their roots together form a strength that cannot blow them over. That's how God's designed us to be with one another. We need the strength and support of others or we're going to get blown over. We're going to fall. And we're going to be ineffective for the mission that God's given us. Unity is essential for the glory of God and the picture we tell the world of who he is. Unity is essential for the mission that God's called us to. To go and to tell the world that they can find life in Jesus. And unity is essential for our own good. So that we can be built up in Christ. Selfishness will lead to disunity. And disunity will lead to destruction. That's Paul's concern here in chapter 2. For an advance the gospel, we have to be one. We have to be unified. So how do we have unity? How do we have unity? Paul tells us that the key to unity is humility. Do nothing, he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Gosh, if, you, if you're an underliner or a highlighter or a note taker, like memorize that verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul, Paul defines humility as this. It's, it's not this, but rather it's this. It's not selfish ambition or conceit, but, but rather it's looking around and considering the people around you as more significant than yourself. It's not just caring for your own interests, but it's literally caring for the interests and needs of others around you. Paul says, if you want to be unified, do nothing. That, that word, man, it's a tough word, right? In, in the Greek, I was like, what does that mean? Like, does he really mean this absolute? Growing up, I was told, don't use absolutes, right? Because then you're like getting yourself into, into a situation. So like, Paul, bro, that's an absolute. 
like do nothing. And, and literally it translates do nothing, none, not one, not at all. I'm like, Paul, that's it. Time out, man. No, do nothing from selfishness, from, from a pursuit of getting what's coming for me, thinking of only myself. Like, how can I get mine? How can I take care of myself? Do nothing where my mind and my heart is, man, I want to make sure that I'm taken care of first. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, vain glory, shining the spotlight on myself. Hey, move, move over so I can get, let, let me make sure. Do nothing from putting the spotlight on yourself. But instead, look at the people around you and believe that they are more significant than yourself. Look at the people next to you. Look at the people who are older than you. Look at the people who are younger than you. Look at the people who look different than you. Look at the people who talk different than you. Look at them and believe in your heart that they are more significant than yourself. Shift your thinking. Less of me, more of you. Less of me, more of you. Your preference before my preference. I'd like this. You'd like that? Serious, go for it. Less of me, more of you. Let me hop in the back seat while you have the front seat. That's what humility is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider everyone else around you as more significant than yourself. Don't just care for your own interests, but care literally, physically, for the interests and concerns of others. You have some needs? Awesome. So do they. Help them out. You would like this? Great. So would they. Take care of them too. That's what humility is. That's the call that Paul has for us. Can you imagine a church like that? Can you just imagine a church where everyone you interact with looked at you and considered you as more significant? And where you looked at everyone and considered them as more significant. When someone new walked in, you were like, I got to go get to know them. I got to consider their needs. I got to consider how they're feeling. Can you imagine how welcoming and loving and hospitable a place like that would be? It would be different than any place on the planet. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but consider everyone else is more significant. I think a lot of times we think of humility as like this self-deprecation. Like I'm going to become a floor mat and people are just going to walk all over me. They're going to get their way. They're going to push me over and like, yeah, whatever, because I have to consider you first, right? And so, yeah, whatever you want. And, and it's, not, it's not being a floor mat, right? Letting someone else bully you is not actually benefiting them. And so it's not, it's not considering their best interest when you let them bully you or get away. So it's not being a floor mat. C.S. Lewis has perhaps the best quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not like stepping on yourself and belittling and beating yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less often, right? Paul, Paul didn't say, hey, you're insignificant, so everyone else is more significant. He just said, hey, choose to think that they're more significant than you. You still matter, but just choose to put them ahead of you. He didn't say, don't take care of your needs or interests. He said, just make sure you're taking care of their needs and interests too. Right? It's not being a floor mat. It's just thinking of yourself less often. Hey, less of me, more of you. I think of uh, John the Baptist, man. I love his story. Uh, maybe because I, I, I get it, I relate with it. Before Jesus comes on the scene, right? Like JTB is just blowing up and the church is just going to town. Everybody's coming to him. He's baptizing them, right? And it's like the first mega church ever coming on the scene. Well, then Jesus shows up and people are like, hey, I'm kind of digging this Jesus dude, right? And so they leave John's church and they're going to Jesus and they're hanging out with Jesus. And John's disciples are like, John, dude, what's the deal? Like everybody's leaving us and going over there. And John's like, hey, that's, 
the purpose. He must increase, but I must decrease. Who says that? And yet that's humility. Hey, if everybody's seeing Jesus, that's it. That's the win. We're good. He's got to increase. I must decrease. I think about, I listened to a sermon uh, Matt Chandler gave um, when he took over the village early on, right? Um, it was an old dying church. And so there were a lot of um, elderly folks in it. They'd been there for years. They were setting their ways. And then, and then Matt rolls up and with him comes like a thousand college students or something, right? And so it's an immediate shift in demographic and immediate shift in preferences and music and lighting. They had candles now. Like there's just all these different things. And a lot of the folks are like, hey, Matt, uh-uh, I ain't liking that. Like that's not how we did it. And then he, he just praises this one elder who came up and he said, Matt, I don't love the music. There's a lot of things I don't like. But if it means that more of those young people come to know Jesus, I'm in. That's humility. Let me lay aside my preferences for the preference of others. Let, let me lay aside what I would like so that other people can see Christ. That's, that's humility. Humility uh, happens when we, when we come and we serve one another, Right? When, when you don't have kids and yet you serve someone else's kids, man, that's humility. That's humility. When you go stand in 100 degree temperatures so that you can serve other people and pull weeds, man, that's humility. When we serve others, humility happens when we take our money and we say, hey, this isn't my money, this is God's money. So I'm gonna generously give to the needs of other people. I'm gonna make sure that the hungry have some food. I'm gonna make sure that my buddy has his bills paid on time. I'm gonna make sure that the church can continue to do their work because it's not my money anyways. I'm gonna hold on loosely to that. That's humility. Humility happens when a husband prefers his wife. Man, she doesn't want to do dishes either. And so when we get up and we're like, hey, I got this. Let me do the dishes. You go sit down, right? That's humility. When we consider the wants and preferences of another person above our own, when as a roommate, we're letting our roommates get first choice. When we're taking the, the worst room or whatever, or we're doing double duty chores because, because we don't, oh, someone didn't take out the trash again, right? Like we don't have to do that. Humility just, Picks up the trash, ties it up, walks outside. Maybe you don't have a conversation about responsibilities, but we don't have to be like, oh. <sighs> you know what I'm talking about? You got to let it be known you're not happy about this. And so you just kind of passive aggressively, like get your point across. That's not humility. That's not humility. Humility considers others. Humility sees that people for eternity are going to die and be separated from God. And so we get the courage to walk across the street and say, hey, I just want to tell you about Jesus. I don't want you to miss it because it's what's best for you. Humility sins and, and it holds on loosely. Humility says, not me, less of me, more of, of you, more of the glory of God, more of the good of others. That is what humility is. I mean, I think sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's, the Bible's hard to know what it means. Like, all right, what is God saying here? I don't quite understand it. This is not one of those instances. I think we know what it means. I just think this is one of the hardest verses to live out. I think it's really easy to know what Paul is saying. But if he's telling me to be humble with people that I don't really like, yep. If he's telling me, he doesn't, he doesn't qualify, right? Like it'd be so much easier if he was like, hey, in humility, count those that you like as more significant than yourself. Cool, I got it. In humility, the people who treat you well, yeah, consider them as more significant. Done. Got it. In humility, the people who can like benefit you and give back to you and lift you up, consider them more significant. Okay, cool. But no, he just throws that word others. 
like all others, like the, the people who were rude to me? Yep. What about the person who actively hurt me? <laughs> yep. What about the person who just really annoys me? Like maybe I can just avoid them. No, I think we're supposed to care for their interests too. Like I think we know what Paul is saying here. It's just so stinking hard. Like for real, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition. Not, I, it's so sneaky. I can be doing a good thing and I'm doing it selfishly. Nothing from selfish ambition. All others. Well, how in the world do we do that? And the answer is, we don't. There's no way on our own we can do that. There's no way we're too naturally self-interested. We take a group picture. Hey, let me check it out. Who are we looking at first? First person you're looking at a group picture. It's me. Everybody else can be a 10. But if I'm an eight, no, go back. Let's do it again. Come on. Right? We're so naturally just wired for ourselves. How do we do this? How do we get out of our own way and think of others before ourselves? We don't do it on our own. Our first instinct is self. We need a new instinct. Our first thoughts go to self. We need a new mind. Our, our first love goes to self. We need a new heart. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The only way we're going to be a humble people is in Christ Jesus, the true, perfect model and example of humility. The only way I'm going to think of others first is if the mind of Christ who thinks of others first comes inside of me by faith, by trusting in him that Jesus spiritually, supernaturally comes inside of me and gives me a new mind, gives me eyes to see people differently, gives me a heart to love people differently. I've got to be made new in Jesus. That's the only way that we're going to be humble. We grow in humility when we grow in Christ. Right? The more I think about Jesus, I, I just have less time in the day to think about myself. The more that I look at Jesus, I just have less time to look at myself. It's a pure math game, right? Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put more Jesus in and make no provision for the flesh. The more Jesus you put in, the more it pushes out everything else. I just, I have to grow in Christ and I'll grow in humility. And then Paul, he just, he gives us this hymn. It's an early hymn of who Jesus is. The Bible over and over and over again just puts Jesus in front of us because God just believes that the more we get to Jesus, our life will be changed. And so he gives us this, this picture of the humility of Jesus. Have this mind of humility among yourselves. Be a humble people. Be united. Have this in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, this verse, it can be confusing at first, right? Like, what's this saying? Is it saying that Jesus is not God? But that's not what it's saying. That first phrase, um, who, though he was in the form of God, that's saying he was the very essence of God, the very nature of God. Jesus was God. Though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean that he's trying to grab hold of God's status and position and, and grasp hold of it. He's already got it. It's saying that he doesn't hold on to it. 
The position of Jesus, man, he's the the creator and sustainer of the world. He's always been there, eternally existed, God in the flesh. He's got the right to stand on the throne. He's got the position. He's got the status to stand over us and say, I am king. I am God. But what he does, he doesn't hold on tightly. He doesn't grasp onto his position. Instead, he lets go of it so that he can step down and get beneath us and serve us and lift us up. Like, just if we... Oh, if we just let that sink in, that the God of this world stepped out of his place in heaven, let go of what was his to be had so that he can give to us what we never deserved. He deserved the spot in heaven. He deserved his seat. That was his. He is God. And he lets go of it to give me and you his position? Like, how does that happen? What kind of God does that? I mean, that is humility. When Jesus, he considered us more significant than himself. And he prayed in the garden, God, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to do this if there's another way, but not my will, your will be done, right? He submitted himself to the will of God for our good. That is the humility of Jesus for you and for me. He emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He knelt down and he picked up our dirty feet in his hands. He got our dirt on him. The the king, the one that we should be backing up in fear of, he comes to us and serves. How far? Like maybe he just did a little. No. And being found in the form of human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate humiliation. Jesus suffers and he takes all of our guilt and shame, all those sins that we're embarrassed of that we would never want anyone to know. Jesus strapped on himself in humility and he hung there in front of a crowd that mocked him and pointed and laughed and said, if you're God, come on, do your thing, man, step up. Where are you? And he hung there so that our sins could be paid for on the cross. My debt against God, my guilt against him, Jesus took on himself. That's the level of humility that Jesus has for us. That's that's humility. It's a shame and a mockery to the name of Jesus when us who have received his humility stand prideful and selfish. We're missing it. The humility of Jesus, it, it's staggering. Like, who am I? What, what, who am I to think, like, God, let the spotlight be on me. Let's make sure that, that we get recognition for this. After he's done that, man, it's this humility that changes us, that when we're in Jesus, that's the humility that comes into us in our minds and our hearts. It's only in Christ that we receive that humility and we can love people the way that Jesus loved And it's the humble that God exalts. Christ is lifted up through lives laid down. When he he came in humility and laid his life down for our good, God exalted him to the highest place. That every knee would bow, every tongue would confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The day is coming when we will all bow our knee and worship this king. The day is coming because God has exalted him back to the place that he deserves. Christ is lifted up by our lives laid down. And not only that, God says he's going to lift our lives up as well. 
But God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His promise is that he's going to lift us up. Maybe choppy here on earth, but one day it's going to be complete. And he will lift us up. This selfishness leads to disunity, which leads to destruction. It's going to, it's going to end what God has called us to here. It's going to put it to an end. We're going to suffer. The glory of God's going to suffer. The people around us are going to suffer if we're selfish and we're disunified. We have to be unified as a church. All of us, not just some of us, not just the majority, all of us, we have to be unified as one. We have to consider others as more significant than ourselves. We have to serve the interests of others. And the only way that we can pursue that, the only way we can be unified in humility is by receiving the humility of Christ for us. Growing in Christ. We're not going to grow in humility if we don't. It's only through Jesus. Has his humility, has it moved you? Has this humility, have, have, you, have you come to give your life to him and to trust him in faith? Or are you still holding on to your way, to how you think it should go? It's a, it's a simple act of humility to surrender to him, the one who first stepped out in humility. Where are there areas in your life where you, you hold tightly to your way, where you don't want to give your preference where, you, where there's maybe someone you don't want to consider as more significant than yourself. And just confess that to the Lord in light of Christ's humility to you. Just confess it. God, I'm just, I'm, I'm, this is about me. God, this is for me. And allow the grace and humility of Jesus to forgive you and to change you. That's the invitation for all of us. I want to invite you just to take a second, um, a minute here, uh, with just you and God. And would you, uh, the end of Psalm uh, 139, we, we looked at a community group the other day, and I, it was a powerful invitation that David gives to, to God. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Would, would you pray that with God? Would you invite him to search you? To call forward any way that's not humble? To call forward any way that's selfishly driven? Would you invite him to expose you and to bring that to light? But the invitation is you don't have to hold on to it. That he'll lead you in the way everlasting. Invite him to expose it, confess it, repent and move forward. That's the invitation that God offers to us. So let's just take a minute. Let's just pray together before God. Uh, and then we will we'll move forward in, in worship through song. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.